Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 525 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and I would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. I don't think I mentioned my name is Rick Archer. Most of you know that, but in case you have never watched one of these, that's my name. My guest today is John Prendergast, Ph.D. John is the author of The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence, and book called In Touch, How to Tune into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. John studied for many years with the European Advaita Master Jean Klein, as well as with Adyashanti. And that's his intro. It's, it's brief. That's <laughs> what so he sent me, so that's good. Brief is good. So welcome, John. Well, thank you. It feels like just a blink of the eye since we last spoke. Yeah, we did one of these um, four and a half years ago, roughly. And um, I listened to it in preparation for this one, and I thought it was a great conversation. So those of you who are listening to this one might even want to listen to that one first, or otherwise listen to it afterwards, because we covered a lot of stuff, and hopefully we won't cover the same stuff in this interview. John hadn't written his new book then, and that's mostly what we're going to be talking about, but the conversation may meander here and there. And you can't teach old dog new tricks, so we might touch upon some points we've already discussed. And also, those of you listening, again, if you're listening live, if you have a question you'd like to submit during the interview, please submit it, and uh, we'll try to get to it. The main theme of your book, seems to me, is, well, the, the subtitle of your book, The Deep Heart, is Our Portal to Presence. So a portal means like a, an entryway that you can go through in order to get to something. You said in your book, this quote jumped out at me, if there are layers to the heart ranging from the relatively gross through the refined to the transcendent, then many of us will be able to directly or indirectly sense this in some way. So for starters, why don't you define what you mean by the heart, and then let's talk about these layers and talk about the heart being a portal to presence. Well, it's a big subject, actually, uh, infinite, infinitely large. So um, the heart is multidimensional, and this is not just a theoretical kind of formulation, but very much experiential in terms of my own experience and my work with um, students and clients as well. And so when I speak of the heart and the deep heart, I'm actually speaking to this multidimensionality. So on a localized kind of sense of the heart is in the center of the chest. And we unconsciously often touch ourselves here when we feel deeply touched by something or moved by something or when we're referring to ourselves. So that gives us a clue that it's a very important center. Or even if we're shocked by something, you know, we might say, oh my God. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting. It's like the body has its own language and the hands often are speaking when the head and the mind is doing something else our hands, and I've noticed this in my work with people, are speaking a different language, often a more essential language. And so there is a pointing to the heart area. And, you know, for some people who've 
I think had difficult upbringings or, or have not really been met in a deep way, the heart area can feel pretty numb, uh, pretty flat. If there's been a lot of emotional wounding, for instance, it's a place we don't want to feel and don't want to go. So there can be a kind of armoring or numbness or coldness or flatness that we may initially feel there. But as we begin to kind of hone in with our attention to the heart, we open up more tender emotional levels. And, and often, I think in common conversation, when we speak with someone as being heart-oriented, we mean someone who's kind of in touch, more loving, more affectionate, more in touch with their hearts. And this is more a personal level, and it's very impacted by our early conditioning. It's where we carry most of our emotional, not all of them, but most of our emotional wounds from relationship with early caregivers. And a lot of psychotherapy gives attention to this for good reason. Because if we feel alienated from this psychological level of the heart, we feel alienated from ourselves, And it's very hard to be close with others. It's very hard to be at ease and at peace with ourselves, just on a personal level. So a lot of personal psychotherapy is oriented towards of revisiting and healing the wounds of childhood. And it, it actually goes very deep in the heart. And when I speak of depth, it's like a depth of sensitivity. It's like the, the willingness to feel like from the surface, I guess you can see my hand, it's like from the surface and then a deepening. I mean, it's going back towards the back of the heart. And when people get in touch with these kind of early, very tender areas, there's a sense of attention. They feel it, and I feel it sitting with them via kind of empathic resonance, this very deep, very tender area of the heart. And often this is where that, you know, there may be pain, there may be tears, there may be grief, but we're getting to a very innocent and early stage of the heart, often, you know, the first few years of childhood before the heart was conditioned uh, very heavily. And so there's, we get into essential qualities and these are qualities of affection, gratitude, joy, just a sense of awe and wonder, for instance. And sometimes therapists speak of this as the magical child or the, you know, the kind of innocent child. And now we're on the border of what I call poetically the soul. It's still personal, but it's very, very deep and very intimate. So there's a sense of really being in touch with our personal self, and it allows the capacity to connect with one another in a way that feels deeply touching and very nourishing. So that's kind of the impact relationally of touching this. But we also tap into archetypes and essential qualities and uh, flow states and sometimes ecstatic states. And so very often transpersonal psychology focuses on this area, trying to cultivate these qualities and sustain them. But it doesn't stop there. This is the interesting thing. It's like, like we're at the back of the heart and we can feel it as a kind of vibration of light, luminosity. And then as we keep going, it's like a falling back into this infinite field of loving awareness. And it becomes non-localized. I mean, initially a kind of falling back and then a sense of it being really in all directions all of the time. And this is what Ramana spoke of when he used the word heart with a capital H as consciousness. So we have this range and there's a level of, of feeling and sensing and knowing too which corresponds to each of these levels of the heart. And it's kind of central in the human body, below the head and you know, above the lower part of the body. And it's central, just we use the word the heart to mean the center of something. So any experience can be a portal, a doorway into our true nature. And 
and and there's a major portal through the mind and it when it opens there's a sense of tremendous freedom infinite freedom and spaciousness these are the essential qualities lucidity clarity knowing we're not the story uh, an image that we've identified ourselves with and feeling unbound in space and time we hear those descriptions that corresponds very often with a mental awakening and when the heart awakens to its depths really to a sense of this this great heart to a sense of wholeness and being undivided the whole of life it's, it's a feeling of unconditional love and all is well no matter what and a sense of oneness or or being undivided and the hara or the belly in japanese is the the lower center and opens to different qualities and these are like different qualities of the same awareness but in the heart what comes very spontaneously is a sense of gratitude and tremendous compassion as the heart awakens that gives us a lot to discuss to unpack it does yeah. it's quite a range let me bounce something so. off you and see what you think i've heard that it described that everything we experience we experience through the senses and that all the senses have their root or their source in presence or in the transcendent and they we can say they radiate out from there like spokes so it's said that thinking, ordinary discursive thinking in the mind, is actually a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. Like I could shout what I'm saying right now and it'd be really loud, or I could speak in this tone of voice and it's not so loud, or I could just actually think the words I'm saying right now without saying them to you, and, but I would still hear them. So it's said, it's said that thinking is a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing, and obviously the use of a mantra takes you to subtler still levels of a thought. And you can arrive at the transcendent that way. And obviously, there are visual, gross and subtle forms. You know, perhaps artists are, are more um, adroit with, with the subtleties of vision. Uh, and some people use yantras or visualization as means of transcending. Um, and it's said that, the, that feelings are a subtler aspect of the sense of touch. Now, all the different senses, it seems, hearing is the ears, you know, seeing is the eyes, smelling is the nose, taste is the tongue. But then touch, you know, is all the skin. But then it seems like this, and maybe you could experience subtler aspects of touch through the skin, but primarily it seems that the heart is responsible for the subtler realms of the sense of touch or feeling, just as the mind is responsible for the subtler aspects of the sense of hearing through thought. And so what I hear when I talk, hear you talk about the range from gross through refined to transcendent through the heart as a portal is following or probing or exploring subtler, more refined, more delicate levels of the sense of touch, of feeling, and ultimately arriving at the source of all the senses. To what extent do you concur with what I said and what, how would you elaborate on it, if you wished? Well... I mean, I would say it's an interesting, kind of interesting view I haven't thought too much about. I would say it is, it's basically accurate. I would use the word feeling and also the word felt sense, which is actually a combination of those two before they actually are distinguished from thought or imagery. So it's a whole body sense of something. Uh, It's a definition of a felt sense. And I, I, I like this word you know, that was coined by Eugene Genlin many years ago. So a lot of the experiential invitation when I work with people is to get a felt sense, you know, of what is in the heart area. And so 
the felt sense, what I like about it is it actually includes those other dimensions of sensation. That is to say, hearing and also vision. And some people, and this is very interesting, have more access to the depths of the heart area through visualization, spontaneous visualization. So, you know, it's not exclusive of that. And so too with hearing. So people have different dominant channels of receiving information and understanding. Some of us are more visual, some more auditory, more, some of us more kinesthetic. But this is a form of interior perception. There's a word for that, inter- interoceiving or interoception. And it can use any facet, actually, of those senses. And it will vary from person to person. So for instance, in my case, I'm predominantly kinesthetic or proprioceptive. So I sense things predominantly. And then secondarily, there's like visual images that come. And this, I'm speaking of a kind of interior search mode. Like if I'm sitting with a question in heartfelt meditative inquiry, like what's going on or what what's happening or what some question I may be sitting with. Sometimes when I lead retreats, for instance, we'll, we'll do this and I'll sit with the same question that I share with my students. Very often, the first movement will be vibratory. It's like there's some very subtle vibration felt in the body and then a quality of luminosity that comes with that. So there's a visual aspect. And then after that, sometimes a word will come. But that's, a, that's kind of a tertiary movement. And that will kind of begin to define, like, maybe the word that comes up is ground or fear, or but it has something to do with what's in the vibratory field. So what's common to all of this is vibration, interestingly. And the vibration can be translated through different senses. So we're going to, to subtler levels, vibratory levels of experience, to the ground itself, which is, as you were suggesting, the transcendent field as a source. It's interesting. Pretty much every experience we have, I suppose, involves more than one sense, and often all of them. I mean, if we're eating food, for instance, it it may have a smell, it has a taste, obviously, it has a a sight, we can look at it. If it's Rice Krispies, it has a sound, we can touch the food. So in the subtle realm, I suppose the same thing would be true, that all five senses would be involved, but maybe, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but maybe one or another would be predominant based upon the experience we're having and also based upon our predilection, as you were just saying. I mean, I know people who say they don't actually think thoughts the way most people describe them. They, mm-hmm. they see things. That's right. That's, kind of, that's mm-hmm. their mode of thinking. Yeah, it's, rather than being a sub-vocalization, it's more of a visualization. Yeah. Kind of a unique quality of the heart that you were honing in on, which is it has a feeling tone to it. And so, you know, it has an aspect of being we can access being through the heart. We can access a knowing, a sense of I am. And there's a feeling tone here that I think is unique to the heart, which is ananda, which is joy, which is this sublime, quiet contentment. That's actually how I experience it, rather than blissful ecstasy. I mean, there can be moments of that. But this, this quality of joy, of ananda, seems particularly relevant and accessible through the heart area. And of course, of grief as well. So joy and grief, when we really open to life, we open to this tremendous poignancy of life. We open to quality of joy, appreciation, love, gratitude, but also sorrow because of the suffering and because of the loss. And, and if we're really here as a human being, we're going to experience all of that you know, very fully. So those qualities sometimes blend 
of joy and sorrow, and it just gives a quality of poignancy to it that's felt deeply in the heart, and grief as well. The grief itself from turning away from really our true nature in order to adjust and accommodate and survive. So that's a common, I'm kind of describing kind of the architecture of the heart and some of the common feelings that arise as we go more deeply. And both joy joy and grief do. As you were saying that, I was sort of thinking of, um, you know, the extent to which most people are pretty shut down in terms of all their senses and how there are, you know, there have been sort of um, geniuses of one or another sense. And so Mozart or Beethoven would be geniuses of the sense of sound and great artists of the sense of sight and maybe a, a great cook or a food critic or something of the sense of taste. But with the heart, when we think of the geniuses, we kind of might think of Mother Teresa or St. Francis or somebody who seemed to have an incredibly developed heart and who just really poured out love and compassion and, and everything for other people. But in many cases, who was also acutely sensitive to the suffering, which is why they often tried to do something about it rather than just walk by the, the person in the gutter. They pick them up or try to do something. Yeah, I mean, these are people... Yeah, that we do think of St. Francis. Rumi is another, you know, there's a tremendous passionate quality for the beloved. So we'll, we'll find compassion, we'll find devotion also. You know, it may be devotion to what religious people would call the divine or God or to a religious figure. For me, this is kind of an interesting subject because in my own process, Initially, I, you know, as you know, I came in through TM and mantra and then self-inquiry. And so it was really kind of the subtle mind and, and using that kind of quality of clarity. But as this awareness has really deepened and there's been a, you know, a waking down, the qualities of the heart have just come more and more into the foreground with a sense of devotion. But devotion to what, you know, exactly? Or to whom? I, I can't say. And I would say devotion to the truth. This is like a love of truth. And so this is another quality of the heart, that, that ability to feel profound compassion and to be able to act on it, too, because sometimes we can get overwhelmed by empathy and compassion. But uh, and there are many figures you know, who are geniuses of the heart, who have that quality of transmitting tremendous love and compassion. That's healing. Or forgiveness, you know, somebody like Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 Mm. years or something, but then just didn't hold any resentment toward his captors, forgave them. Yeah, good example. Or even Christ on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And there's a love of beauty also. There's an an aesthetic sensitivity that uh, can be felt throughout the body. But often when we see, like speaking of Christian symbolism when i was at saint peter's cathedral maybe three years ago in the vatican and looked at michelangelo's pieta you know where the figure of mary is holding the corpse of jesus it's an extraordinary work you know just visually to to see this figure of compassion like the great mother holding the suffering of the world but there's so much beauty in it too i mean it's both beautiful and compassionate and wise and you know so all of these can blend in a beautiful way can you imagine being able to create such a thing it's hard to imagine Unbelievable. it is uh to have a a block of marble and to unfold that form geez talk about genius 
you mentioned your TM background. You, you may have remembered Marge used to say that he felt that self-realization was the prerequisite to the significant unfoldment of the heart or of, of devotion. And that, you know, without that foundation, it was like a, a little pond trying to rise up in big waves, couldn't do it, but an ocean can do it. So he kind of recommended becoming oceanic in our awareness. And then on that foundation, being able to, the next phase of unfoldment would kind of naturally occur. Well, in the Indian system, you know, this is uh, bhakti. And, you know, from a personal level, there's, you know, it's bhakti. But when there is a, the knowing intimately of true nature, then it's parabhakti or the highest bhakti. We usually think of it's an impersonal quality of love and devotion. And often we associate that word with something other than love, but it's, it has that quality. It does, it's not egoic. It's non-personal. Right. Mm-hmm. But it kind of makes sense in a way that, you know, if, if the self hasn't been realized, there's generally a, a lack of awareness, uh, often a kind of a dullness. And even to speak of like really appreciating something, which is kind of what love is, really having profound appreciation. If you don't know who the appreciator is, is there really any standpoint from which to deeply, deeply appreciate? And it's kind of interesting what you just said, that you find yourself, you know, you went through all this inner development, and then now you find this devotion, even if it's without an object. And it almost sounded like you could have used the word appreciation there, just even visually things are more beautiful mm-hmm. and stuff. There's just this enhanced appreciation. for Appreciation and, and gratitude. And gratitude goes, yeah. It's just right next to it. There's just like savoring the most ordinary moments in our life. You know, I mean, this is, you know, we have a lovely conversation, but you could be doing the dishes or, you know, just driving the car. And when we are out of kind of our egocentric, egocentricity, and just available, there is such appreciation and gratitude for simple moments of now, life. You mentioned that you often feel this devotion without necessarily having a focal point to it. Do you feel mm-hmm. that also with the gratitude? There's just this sort of feeling of gratitude, but not toward anyone or anything? That's right. I mean, there's great grateful for many things, of course, in, in my relative life, my friends, my family, my surroundings, but mostly gratitude to be, gratitude to be awake and aware. You know, it's like this incredible evolution of form allowing the experience of itself. So the gratitude for being is actually predominant and the gratitude for everything else is secondary. You know what I get a lot and see if you can relate to it too, like walking down the street, looking at the sidewalk, looking at the grass, looking at the trees, uh, just experiencing ordinary stuff. Uh, There's this sort of um, almost constant appreciation of what a miracle I'm actually looking at. And this with, is it. Yeah, without actually getting too intellectual about it, but just a, a feeling of what a marvel is right in front of our very eyes all the time. And if we want to look at it scientifically, you know, what's, what's actually going on with the cells and the molecules and everything else, it's just this vast intelligence at play. And we are, we're in it and it's in us. And it's just like this, we're a fish in that ocean. And that's where, for me, the devotion and gratitude starts to really amp up, you know, this sense of I'm having this divine experience and I'm just walking down the sidewalk. And you're having it right now. Yes, you're exactly. Not, as you talk about it, I could feel that. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> you know, and, and the, in, the intellectual part is secondary. You, know, yeah. we can you, can kind talk, of, you can intellectualize in order to verbalize right. it, but, but it, primarily, you don't have to do that. Yeah. No, primarily it's a direct sensing. 
you know, it's a felt sense of reality and a, a gratitude that just spontaneously pours out because of that. We're not trying to be grateful. We're not practicing gratitude. It actually comes from the knowing of what this is, the knowing yeah. and the being of it. And I can clearly remember like 50 years ago, just sort of looking at a similar scene, you know, looking at the trees or something and feeling kind of dead inside and sort of oh, everything oh. was sort of dead outside. There was just no, no magic to it like there is now. Well, that's it. When there's deadness inside, there's deadness outside. When we're shut down internally, we're disconnected. And this is our greatest suffering, by the way, this sense of aloneness and alienation. And it comes from not knowing the true nature of the heart and of ourself. Yeah. No, I'm not for a moment suggesting that I have arrived at some kind of state or anything like that. I mean, if, if you compare yourself with someone like Mirabai or, you know, the great devotees and Teresa of Avila, Avila. when you sort of read their devotional literature and the kinds of experiences that they had, you realize that you're still kind of in kindergarten, at least I do, but there's some flavor of it anyway, which is great. Well, this is it. And it's important not to compare. It's like what you're touching, what we're touching right now is what everyone has touched in this, you know, in this sense of spontaneous gratitude and devotion. It's just a matter of degree, and we are where we are, where we are, and we just continue to grow. That's yeah, and, and when we do, it's really important to let it in. You know, this is one thing I notice it's in my work with people. It's like it's not so difficult to touch it, but often the mind will dismiss it or go on to something else because it has an agenda. But to actually, when we're sensing directly, as we are now, what this is, it's like to actually slow down and let it in, and recognize what it is, right? Not just a state, not just an experience, but actually a knowing, a direct knowing and feeling of what's true, what's most true. And when we do, and when we do, when we really let it in, the body-mind begins to orient and reorient towards this, because this is, this is our true nature. And this is the true nature of the body and the mind, of our thinking and our feeling and our sensing. And the body, of the, body and the mind is heavily conditioned. But when it touches this knowing and recognition, because this is all about recognition, as far as I'm concerned, the path of recognition, when there is a recognition of this to really let it in, not grasping, right? because it's not an object, but it's almost like letting the body-mind be saturated by this knowing and this feeling. So why wouldn't the person let it in and how, how would they shut it out? And why isn't it more lively in people's awareness as a rule? Yeah, well, this is the question of resistance. It's a very important question, a big question as well. Well, don't you think, I mean, the average person, if we look at all the millions of people in the world, Somebody sent me a video of the traffic jam in Los Angeles on Thanksgiving, you know, traffic, just bumper to bumper taillights as far as the eye could see on the, on the freeway. Beautiful lights. <laughs> yeah, beautiful lights, like <laughs> almost like Christmas. Um, but, you know, people are buffeted and jostled and impacted and stressed and tired and life comes at you. And it seems to me that it's the, the buffeting of life from infancy that tends to calcify or uh, encrust our sensitivity. Probably you would agree with that. You can elaborate on it. But then how do we reverse yeah, although the process? I think the buffeting is often more relational. 
So for instance, you know, it's like traffic is one thing, you know, we can handle that or maybe not. But when we're in relationship with someone, particularly like a parent who is negligent or abusive, that's a much more difficult situation to navigate. So we do shut down. Yeah, and that kind of stuff hits us when long before we've learned how to drive. That's right. Yeah. And long before we know how to make sense out of our experience. I mean, sometimes this happens so early on, we can hardly make sense out of our experience. And so we we armor ourselves. And and then that becomes our default mode, right? We're armored. We're cut off from really what's essential within ourselves, And then we identify with it. So we take ourselves to be that armoring, that shell, basically. And then there's another point here, which is really quite interesting for me, which is in my work with people on retreat in particular, but one-on-one mentoring, people can kind of drop the shell and have a direct, really knowing recognition of themselves. And then they return to their default mode. And then they're still afraid of letting go. This is very interesting. So it's like there are different levels in the body-mind that I think are impacted by these letting goes and openings. Some participate in them more consciously and some less so. And we're pulled back by those less conscious elements that kind of crystallize a more separate sense of self. So it's a gradual process. And there's a fear, there's a very important existential fear here, which is of annihilation. Because from the point of view of the mind, the letting go looks like death, death of the body. And those two are very often confused, the death of the story, the death of the self-image, and the death of the body. And so terror often arises in this quest to come home to who we really are. And that's an important part of the resistance, too. Part of it is just, you know, dealing with the vicissitudes and challenges of life and the shocks, as you were suggesting, and then getting into a default mode and and identifying with it. But part of it also is a kind of resistance that our mind-oriented identity has with the unknown, because the unknown is equated with something dangerous. And so we're constantly trying to know in order to be in control, in order to be safe. So to actually see that mechanism working in our life with more and more clarity allows us to be less at effect of it and is part of the process, I think, of awakening. It seems there must be something natural and necessary and even beneficial and helpful to the armoring that accumulates in our early years because it happens to everybody. So Uh it couldn't be something that's not supposed to happen. It happens to everybody. It's a developmental stage. Yeah. Uh And obviously in, in certain families, it must happen much less than in others. If you have a really warm, loving family with highly involved parents who aren't all messed up, then perhaps you go through your childhood relatively unscathed, although there's always school. And maybe it correlates, you could tell us as a psychologist, whether it correlates with the sort of formation of an ego structure, which everyone says is necessary in our early years. Uh-huh. We have to have a, some, uh-huh. some people say you have to have a, a strong, healthy ego in order to eventually transcend the ego. It has to be healed and made whole before it, we can even there's talk some, of seeing beyond it. Yeah, there's some truth to that. So there's something that is kind of natural and developmental in terms of uh, developing a, an individuated sense of self. It's actually very healthy, you know, to demerge from our parents and our family and to follow what feels authentic in terms of our own experience of ourself. And uh, that's an important process. 
but it is different. And so, you know, a self-story and a self-image accompanies that process of individuation. But the interesting thing is, as the individuation increases, then that story and that image is felt more and more as a bind, kind of a binding force, like a heavy coat. And we're wanting to shed it more and more. It's like we want to go on to the next stage developmentally, which is to free ourselves of those images and stories. Relatively speaking, we still have them, but we hold them very lightly and we recognize what they are. And interestingly, that actually supports the process of individuation, which is to say we're more uniquely ourselves as an individual being, but we're also opening to this deeper dimension that we had abandoned, that we weren't fully conscious of as children. We kind of circle around and reclaim that native innocence, but with the discernment and clarity and, and maturity of an adult. And I think this is a full blossoming of the human, like the recognition of our transcendent ground or roots and a really mature, developed, individuated expression of that. And so there's a creativity that emerges from that. So it's not passive. It has a dynamic quality to it. And this is why I've been drawn to more tantric approaches, too. It's not enough to simply recognize the transcendent nature of life. It's like we really want to live it you know, in a very vivid and individuated way. And it's interesting because one might think that if ultimately we're all the same person and we all we are that unbounded consciousness and so on and so forth, that if we were all to realize that, we would all kind of be the same. But quite the opposite is true. I mean, look at the, the diversity of the Amazon rainforest, whatever of it hasn't been cut down yet. But there's such a, there's a nourishing ground, which causes a great diversity and flourishing of all the, all Mm -hmm. the uh, things that grow in it. So, you know, I, I think that if we had a world in which everyone or pretty much everyone was sort of self-realized that there would be incredible diversity and and, and creativity and, and uniqueness of expression. Every personality would have its own vivid um, characteristics and so on. Well, yet at the same time, everyone felt unified with one another at a deeper level. This is it, the sense of shared ground. And so there's a, a deep respect and, uh, for that diversity and even celebration of it. So as you're speaking, Rick, I'm noticing another quality. What's that? <laughs> which is aliveness. Like you're, there's like this, I could feel like the central channel starting to light up. As you spoke of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it kind of sits us up and, it, and enlivens yeah. uh, our, our quality of life. And this is the, like the unique expression, like the current of life, mm-hmm. you know, arising from the ground of being. And it just, it, on a subtle but very palpable level, it just illuminates the core of the body-mind. And it gives us that sense of alignment and aliveness and, um, and creativity. There's a dynamic, enjoyable quality of life that is more felt. And this is, for me, is as important. This is as important as the discovery of the ground of being, is the living of it in this way. Oh, I totally agree. And as you know, I associated with this group of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, Mariana Kaplan and Jack O'Keefe and Craig Holiday and Miranda McPherson. But we're all very concerned with the phenomenon which has been somewhat prevalent in the spiritual community where people emphasize the transcendent to the exclusion of or without really attending to their individual integrity and their individual expressions. Yeah, this is very relevant. You know, so everything is kind of erased on the personal level 
you know, and um, and devalued, actually, and, and or not fully embodied. So this is part of the maturity and the conversation, I think, that's evolved over decades in the West now, both in Europe and the U.S. and North America and elsewhere, is the uh, a more movement towards aligning, you know, our our individual lives with this transcendent understanding and looking at areas where there are gaps and incongruencies. And this is where vulnerability and honesty uh, is so important and often lacking among teachers and their students. Yeah, here's something from your book that I wrote down regarding spiritual bypassing. This is a quote, spiritual teachers who are emotionally immature and lack empathy will fail to recognize important dimensions of their students' hearts. This oversight can lead to teachings that are dry and abstract um, cognitively brilliant and profound, but emotionally disconnected or poorly attuned. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you, that's a fairly common phenomena where you have that more mental awakening and people have that clarity and a sense of the infinite, but the heart has remained dormant and, um, or dimensions of the heart remain dormant. And so there's, there can be an unkindness, uh, a lack of real sensitivity and care, um, and it's justified in various ways, you know, as whatever crazy wisdom teachings. But in fact, it's heartless teachings is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Crude. So, uh, yeah, it's an important subject. And, and you know, this is, this is where really ethical behavior comes from, not just kind of standards of the mind, but really an openness of the heart. Yeah, I think you would probably agree with, based upon what you said earlier about the tantric path, that... Um, Spirituality should really mean a full blossoming of all facets of what makes us up, which is so it's not just a sort of a taking refuge in the transcendent, it's integration of the transcendent into every nook and cranny of our individual body, mind, and emotions and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this is restating this is, what I think you think. <laughs> Noel, that's an accurate restatement, and that's the theme of embodiment right. really embodying the understanding and. Often I, I experience it, I think of it an experience as a waking down, a waking down and in, like the transcendent often is contacted as above head or above shoulder experience. And as there is a growing maturity of the realization, there's a, a dropping down of attention, often in the heart area and into the hara, not necessarily in a linear way, but just a gradual movement down and in into the core of the body and into these areas that are less conscious, into emotional areas and instinctual areas. And so we get into the challenging areas of relationship and power dynamics and sexuality and survival, which so many religious and spiritual traditions keep at arm's length. And I think this is our our challenge. For me, it's very open-ended. We can recognize the truth of our transcendent nature, and yet different facets of it continue to, to unfold and be embodied. And that's certainly true for me. It feels like a very open-ended and dynamic process. Yeah. It's a shame that some spiritual teachers, and maybe that maybe this is less than it used to be 10 years ago, but some of them would dismiss most of what we're saying right now as just a concession with Maya, you know, as, as a concession with, with a personal self, which they continually emphasize doesn't even exist. So why are we talking about it? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, that's true. I think maybe 10 or 20 years ago, that devaluation, that devaluative, um, dismissive approach would be more common. But that's changing. 
significantly, I think. I think it is. And I've been told by people who have hung out in those circles that there's a tendency toward really being nihilistic and, and, and even sort of doing all kinds of crazy stuff and, um, you know, excessive drinking and inappropriate behavior and all and rationalizing it as doesn't matter because there's really no one doing it. Well, to me, that's such an unhelpful perspective. Yeah, unhelpful and unhealthy, I think. And again, it, it's um, transcendent and not imminent in its accent. And both are important. You know, some people will kind of err in the other direction, I think, too. And they won't fully value the importance of the no one and the nothing. You know, they want to get to the everything, you know, <laughs> without going through the, they want to get to the fullness without going through the emptiness. And uh, um, there's a, I think there, there needs to be an emptying out um, of these, this kind of, uh, to a large extent, the personal identity in order for um, this, you know, ex- genuine experience of imminence to flower as we're speaking. Yeah, sometimes people are criticized for um, just being on a perpetual self-improvement treadmill exactly, uh, without taking recourse to the deeper qualities of the self, which are impersonal, which are universal. But I think what you're saying there is really key, which is that both and, you know, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't be either or. Mm-hmm. They're supportive. They're, they're different facets of reality uh, manifesting. A question came in from someone named Michael Joseph in the UK, which will shift our gears a little bit. Michael says, I find when I rest in stillness, my heart frequently literally purrs shakti like a cat, and this enters the head and quietens the mind. It's not ecstatic, though. Can you suggest how to intensify this heartfelt sense? Well, no, I wouldn't, (laughs) because uh, I wouldn't suggest trying to intensify it. And again, this is kind of the mind wanting to amplify an experience or speed up an experience. I suppose that could be done. And, you know, there are guides and teachers who will do that. But my experience is there's a natural unfolding and pace of unfolding here. And actually in the resting and stillness, there is this natural sense of contentment that does arise. And it's really, it's really, as I said, about letting it in. It's just like receiving the gift of grace that's coming. Because if we try to intensify or amplify an experience, we're actually manipulating it. The mind is getting in, there's some sense of will, and it rarely goes well, and often, and, or maybe occasionally, uh, goes awry. So in my own experience, even though I have, over many years, felt an unfolding sensitivity in these various levels, none of it has been consciously cultivated. I haven't tried to. It's actually been part of a spontaneous unfolding. And I think what's most important is that we, that we love the truth, that that's the most important thing. And again and again, we return to what it is that's most important to us and uh, use that as our guide. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about here is not something flashy. I mean, you know, some people like flashy experiences and they look for them and maybe they take drugs to get them or whatever. But you're talking about something subtle, something really sort of more and more and more gentle and, and yeah. And, and so intensify kind of, maybe that's not how he meant it, but it sounds to me like it's, you know, the opposite of what you're talking about in a way, because what you're talking about is increasingly refined, not amplified. 
Right, refined and and also to understand that this quest is actually to recognize what's here already, regardless of our experience. So it's not about creating an experience. And you know, many of us have heard this teaching over the years. I certainly did for decades and didn't fully appreciate was what was being pointed to. But our true nature is as present whether we're experiencing pleasure or painful experience, and whether it's intense or subtle. You know, so to not be attached to subtle experience or to intense experiences, to pleasure or pain, uh, and to recognize this which is always here. And so it is. It's extraordinarily quiet. You know, often we speak of it as a field, you know, within which experience arises and passes. And a good way to speak of it and think about it, to recognize we are this already. The one who wants to intensify the experience or amplify it is it already. And it's the the recognition of this that's most important. Sure. Now, when you say that it's all always already here, that is not to say that we're always aware of it to the same degree. No. Obviously, no, very that, different. that varies. And some people actually jump to the conclusion that they're enlightened or something because they have the thought that, well, it's always already here. And so now that I know this, you know, I must be done. But I th- yeah, that's not what you're saying. I'm quite sure. You're quite right. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> Intellectual understanding is really the beginning yeah, yeah. of this process. It's kind of like, a, let's say we won the lottery and there's a ticket in our sock drawer and we've forgotten all about it. We don't know that we had won and we're begging on the street. So yeah, you're a millionaire, but it doesn't do you any good because you haven't cashed in the ticket. So you kind of have to tune in and uh, actually experience all this stuff we're talking about. Right. That's a good up-to-date metaphor. The old one is, you know, the beggar sitting on the box and beneath which is a bunch a pile of gold. Of gold. Or something. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, you're, you are a rich man or woman, but uh, you got to lift up the box and discover it for yourself. Even though everyone's heard this idea, I think it bears repeating because there's so many people in the world who addicted to opioids or taking their own lives or you know doing things which clearly indicate that they haven't discovered that they have this wealth of fulfillment just waiting to be experienced so i think you know what you're doing and what we're all doing is developing our own experience of it and t- telling others that it's possible to do so mm-hmm. yeah and it the more we know it firsthand the more it is spontaneously shared as well in an appropriate way so it kind of radiates out from the inside out and programs like this and, you know, our way to, to share that understanding. What's interesting is there's no, there's no movement, I find, to proselytize in the sharing. It's really a, it's really a matter of living it and, and uh, kind of intuitively sensing with whom and when and how to share it if it feels appropriate. But it doesn't need to be articulated, which is very interesting and reminds me of something that Jean Klein, my, my first foundational teacher, said about the discovery of true nature, which was that uh, true nature, it neither asserts nor denies itself. So if we're asserting or denying, we're, we're in a basically egocentric position and understanding. Yeah. You and I, our profession is talking about this stuff and helping others to become more aware of it in one way or another, experientially and intellectually. But I think there's a difference between that and proselytizing. 
we're not trying to get anybody to believe anything necessarily that because we i think we both say that that's not going to do them much good it's more of like um oh how would you say it what are we doing here right <laughs> I mean, I as, as distinguished from you know banging on people's doors with pamphlets well, in hand well this is it you know it's not about adapting and adopting a new belief and it's interesting because we are talking about, or at least I've been using the word truth, like finding one's true nature or being loving what's most true or the truth. I had a real aversion to using that language for a while just because of my kind of skeptical intellect and my knowledge that so many religions and cults use the same language to induce really thoughtless kind of followers and naive followers to follow a particular dogma. But what's really clear is the truth that, that we're talking about and pointing to is prior to thought, and thus, thus prior to any dogma or any belief. And it's not about adopting a new belief, but actually examining our existing beliefs. And it's not about learning something, it's about unlearning. And so it's a reversal, in some way the opposite of trying to inculcate a belief. It's really about an invitation, I would say, to examine. And for those who are interested, yeah, we're not pounding on doors. We're, we're actually living as an open door and people who are interested can come, you know, and share and inquire. And that feels very, there's something mysterious about this process of how we come to this understanding and how it gets shared, which it seems to be personal in some way. And yet on some other level, we can feel, you know, a greater intelligence um, moving through us, not in the sense of being inflated about it, but just you can you can feel when people they hear something, maybe they hear you know you speaking or someone on your program, and something lights up. You know, there's a kind of flame of recognition really brightens, and this is part of their own process of self recognition and self discovery. So there's something very kind of spontaneous, I think, in this this movement of a deeper intelligence that's working through everyone. Yeah. One way of contrasting the orientation to the word truth is that in some cases, people feel like, okay, I've got the truth and my, my group has the truth. And in some sense, that makes us better than other people. We're saved, they're not, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas I think that what you're talking about um, would actually culture greater humility in a person because they realize it's not something they can possess. That's right. It's something which they are in a very deep sense, but we all are. There was some story about Ramdas. I believe his brother was in a mental hospital or something. And, um, you know, he went to visit him and he said to him, um, the reason that, you know, you think you're God, right? He said to his brother, because his brother was locked up in a mental hospital for thinking he was God. So the difference, the reason you're in there and I'm out here is that, you know, I also think I'm God, but I think everybody is. <laughs> exactly. In your case, you just think you are. <laughs> this is a, a famous Ramdas story. <laughs> it's a very good distinction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, you know, I, I love that to it because it doesn't, it doesn't bring a sense of being special and it doesn't create div- division. It does the opposite. There's a kind of melting of our specialness and, and melting of the us and the them and as a, you know, something substantial. And the recognition on a, really on a felt sense, much more than intellectual, of our shared common ground, not just of humanity, not just of our interconnectedness, right? 
not just that we share or breathe the same air and eat the same food and are interconnected economically and ecologically and politically and culturally, you know, which is all true on a relative level. But deeper than that, really more essential than that, we share the very same ground of being. And that touches a whole different dimension, uh, this recognition, than interconnectedness. And I find, I mention this because I, I find these levels sometimes conflated, the sense of the undivided nature of being and our interconnectedness. I would say our interconnectedness is an expression on a relative level, all sorts of relative levels of that underlying undivided nature. But when we touch that deepest level of that which is undivided, um, we come out of really our our deepest level of separation and in that recognition of our of our wholeness. So uh, that's something I um, I've been emphasizing more in my teaching too because it was interesting as an early meditator i really felt like i was going into my own space you know i was going into an expansive space but it was still on some level personal even though it was described you know as whatever cosmic consciousness or god consciousness or unitive consciousness um, i was going into a state and it was somehow my state um, and all of that it falls away. There's not a my state, and it's not a state, and and um, there's a profound release that comes with that recognition um, and sense of awe too. As I, I know, as this unfolded for me, it was it was like this great open secret revealing itself, and um, you know, just touched me to the very core. Yeah. The obvious biblical references to the, what you're talking about would be, um, you know, firstly, the golden rule, rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the, the deeper meaning of it is that they are you um, and vice versa. And then also, you know, um, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Um, and, you know, the, the deeper meaning of that, obviously, is that we're, whatever you do, oh, who is it um, Ama has this saying that acting hurtfully toward others is like holding a knife that doesn't have a handle and it's sharp on both ends. You might be hurting them, but you're cutting your, yourself at the same time because, you know, there is that underlying unity. I, I heard uh, many years ago when Ama was first in the U.S., uh, I went on tour with her and we uh, traveled to Boston. This would have been like 1987, I think. Um, anyway, um, someone asked her about there was a similar uh, kind of question, and she said, it's like laying on your back and spitting up into the air. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> like it all comes back. Yeah. You know, it just makes a mess on yourself. Uh, cool. She comes up with some yeah, pretty good metaphors. It's a very, very earthy metaphor. <laughs> that one stayed with me yeah. <laughs> third of a century later. Yeah. Um, the question came in from Francis in Hampton, Virginia. Um, Francis asks, having had a traumatic childhood, at times I try to work out those shadow aspects of myself, but knowing the limitations of analysis, I have a hard time knowing whether I, all I am doing is getting lost or reinforcing my story. Likewise, when doing self-inquiry, I see that my story is just a story. However, I question it. I'm attempting. I question if I'm attempting spiritual bypass. How can I tell the difference? 
That's an excellent question. And it's a question many people have, you know, about doing psychological work or self-inquiry. And is the psychological work reinforcing psychological patterns? Is the self-inquiry avoiding psychological material? And it can be true in either case, actually. Um, So, you know, as you know, and some of your listeners know, I, I kind of move back and forth between those domains depending really on where attention is being called and what's needed. So I think the most important thing is that there's a a dynamic interaction between these different domains of kind of conditioned and unconditioned. And we will be called to attend to one domain over another at various times. That's an intuitive process. So it's about inner listening. It's like, what do I need to pay attention to? It can be a question. And to let the question kind of fall into the heart and be quiet. And often if we listen um, just for a minute, we can, there'll be an inner guidance. Our heart wisdom will begin to guide us as to where attention needs to go. Then another question is, how do we attend to our conditioning? With psychotherapy, the tendency is to, in the most superficial form, is to talk about it and maybe identify, you know, origins and you know, our childhood and then talk about those. And hopefully through insight, there'll be some resolution. That is a fairly superficial approach and rarely yields very much. And in fact, can uh, reinforce the pattern. Uh, We just develop kind of a more psychologically savvy identity, but we're still at the effect of the conditioning. A deeper approach is actually to go into it, you know, and actually explore it more experientially being willing to feel and sense the impact of it and be with that more intimately. This is a more effective approach. But I think the most effective approach is if we can begin from presence. And the more that we can begin our investigation into our conditioning from a sense of presence, um, the less manipulative it will be and um, the less we will be identifying with it as well. So, For those who have that kind of understanding that there is a presence available, for instance, when I'm working with people who are in the awakening process and working with their psychological process, their material, I'll say, let's take a minute, just close the eyes, take a few deep breaths, feel yourself held, you know, in the chair, relax, feel yourself held by something greater than the chair or the gravity, a field of awareness, feel a sense of space all around your body. Feel it within your body. Notice it's the same space within and without your body. And notice that this space is awake. And and then notice yourself as this awake space. So there's an, uh, this can happen not necessarily in such a linear way that I just, you know, walked people through. We may just say a few words that are kind of a reminder of that. But we source ourselves in and as presence. And then from that, it's like when a person often in two or three minutes has a sense of that presence, I'll say, okay, let's bring attention to the area that's really asking for it. Let's say there's a contraction in the heart area, you know, that has its origins in some childhood conditioning. Maybe we felt ignored or abused or dismissed in terms of our value. And there's a sense of contraction and there's a sense of a belief that goes with that. I'm unlovable and a feeling of shame. Uh, These are common aspects of conditioning. And I'll say, just bring, welcome this 
kind of cluster of conditioning into the field of presence and let them both be here. So in this way, we're actually inviting like the small human heart, the conditioned heart to rest in the heart of awareness. And I'll say, just let them both be here at the same time. Don't try to make anything happen. Just notice. It's very interesting when we invite the conditioned aspect of our body-mind, let's say this contraction in the heart area and the thoughts and feelings that go with it, to be held in awareness, the heart of awareness, this loving field of awareness, without trying to make something happen. And just notice what happens. And this provides an optimal field for the conditioned body-mind to begin to tell its story, unfold. Often there's a sense of relief and release and a kind of melting. So in this way, we're not avoiding anything. We're evoking our true nature and, and welcoming our condition experience into it. And what's happening is it's like we're welcoming confusion and ignorance into the light of awareness and just letting that light of awareness do its work, which is uh, spontaneously transformative. So this is a kind of a quick overview. And there are other elements you know, that I, of course, discuss in the book about working with our experience. And with self-inquiry, coming back to the second part of the questioner's question, often if the inquiry is heartfelt, it's more potent, which means if we bring attention to the heart area and we can put our hands on the heart area and just take a few deep breaths, and then we'll ask our question, like, what is my deepest knowing? This is a question that has emerged in my work over the years with people. What is the truth or what is my deepest knowing about this? And it could be a belief, for instance, that I'm unlovable, or I'm lacking, or I'm flawed, or I'm unworthy, or endless variations on these core limiting beliefs. And then to let it go. Just let the question go. And we don't go to our mind for an answer. We're just quiet. And what we're doing, if we just like wait half a minute, something will begin to bubble up. A felt sense, maybe an image, maybe a direct knowing that is related to this light of awareness, to our true nature. And so this invites the infusion of heart wisdom into confusion and the conditioned body-mind. So this is a way that actually meditative inquiry can be used to work with our core limiting beliefs and our conditioning. We can, of course, use meditative inquiry to sit with an essential question. Who or what am I? What is this? What is the true nature of my heart? What is the nature of the ground? You know, these kind of questions. And this is um, complementary to sitting in deep silence as well. So I think, I think there are ways that we can work psychologically that don't reinforce the patterns and the psychological identity. There's ways to do meditative inquiry that don't avoid or bypass our conditioning. One thing that I picked up on in what you just said there, There might be instances in which you specifically want to probe into a particular thing, but very often if you just sit in presence, it's like nature has a wisdom of what to bring up. Sometimes I'll I'll be sitting in meditation and some little experience I had in childhood will bubble up or I'll I'll remember some dream I had 30 years ago or something. And um, it's like I never would have thought to sit down and experience that, but that's what chooses to, to come up at that particular time, presumably because it's ready to. I have a trust in the wisdom of the body to know how to purify itself of deep impressions. Exactly. 
Exactly. This is it. These are deep impressions, and there is um, a deeper intelligence at work when we avail ourselves to it, when we really open and listen. There's a natural unwinding process that often feels like a melting. This is very interesting metaphor. Like people, re- again and again, they say, whatever that contraction may be, you know, that, that is related to that conditioning, they often relate it to kind of a sense of something cold or icy. And that as they just let it be held in the heart of awareness, there's a sense of melting or softening. These are some, some of the commonest descriptions that people come. That's a very interesting description. Like what's happening there? What's happening there in the melting? And, and I think, you know, the ice metaphor is a very interesting one because I think egocentric identity is like ice. You know, its fundamental nature is water. It's fluid. But it's crystallized, it's hardened, it's taken a shape that is malleable, in fact. And so it can be warmed when it's met with real warmth, which would equate with love and understanding. When there's loving understanding, uh, our conditioning tends to naturally melt. Like everything is waiting to be met with love and understanding in terms of our conditioning. I thought of a metaphor for the point we were just discussing, which is like, let's say you eat really nutritious food. Well, your body knows how to metabolize those nutrients and where to send them, you know, maybe you need some calcium here and some potassium there and some iron there and so on and so forth. So like that, I think if we can learn to sit in presence, the body will know how to, sounds funny to say use, but how to allow that presence to melt or soften tight spots that are the neurophysiological basis of that conditioning. Yeah, the, the metaphor of metabolizing is actually used a lot in psychological literature now. Oh, is it? It's okay. like, yeah, it's like to metabolize an experience means to digest it, you know, and for it to be integrated, for, the, for what's valuable to be kept and what's not to be eliminated, right? And that's, that's true. It's like we're metabolizing experience all the time, more or less efficiently. And the more tapped in we are to presence, the more that metabolic process, psychological metabolic process is enhanced and catalyzed. A couple of questions have come in from Sweden from two different people. One is from Hannah. I won't try to pronounce the names of these Swedish cities. Hannah asks, what does it mean when the body feels unbalanced, when one puts attention on it? It seems like there is something really hurt deep inside when attention is put on the body. Something feels really hurt inside. Yeah, is, the, is um, what she said. The body feels unbalanced. Something out of balance. When one puts attention mm-hmm. on it. Something feels really hurt. Yeah. I guess that you know the mm-hmm. follow up question to that would be you know well I don't want to put my attention on it because it's it's unpleasant. It, I feel like I'm wallowing in some deep hurt. Well, this is this is interesting because it it circles back to one of your early questions, Rick, about resistance. You know, if this is so here all the time, why why don't we, you know, why don't we just access it, it more yeah. easily? And, yeah, and more people. And also a very interesting point that I've discovered in my work with people that these areas of imbalance or tightness or pain often are the best pathways, best in terms of quickest and most direct pathways to our direct nature, to our true nature. So because we avoid pain, we turn away from it. But the pain is a signal, actually, to pay attention. And as we grow in maturity, and particularly if I'm speaking of emotional pain, it continues to endure, we begin to pay attention and we begin to lean towards what we've been leaning away from. 
especially when we understand that it's a potential portal. So if we lean into our experience of being out of balance, if we lean into our experience of something that's emotionally painful, particularly if we're resourced from presence, that's an important, very important element. These will reveal themselves to be something other than what they initially seem to be. So if we feel into imbalance, we will find balance. If we feel into pain and emptiness and contraction, we will find release. We will find fullness. We will feel an ease of being. And this is a very, very important. This is, again, a kind of tantric principle, is that any experience can be a pathway to our essential nature because it is an expression of that. Now, there's a reason why this is, you know, because these imbalances and these pains are because I'm not speaking necessarily of physical illness. I'm speaking more of an interior subjective sense of malaise. means that we're not actually paying attention. We've overlooked something. And we've overlooked something important or essential. And beneath, and, you know, beneath the contraction, we find essential qualities and our true nature. So it's like in the tightest places of space. And this has been so interesting for people to discover you know, what, what we've been running away from, reactive to, to begin to approach with, not to change, but to be intimate with. And this is a very important principle. We're willing to be intimate and curious and affectionate with our experience, the qualities really of presence. When we approach our experience with that, that's what happens, a very natural kind of opening. And something else is revealed that the contraction was an expression of. I interviewed someone who wrote a book called What's in the Way? is the way. Yes. Her name was Mary. I can't remember her last name at the moment. Someone, if you search in the past interviews. Oh, Mary O'Malley. Okay, good. It's a a great title. Yes. (laughs) And an important important principle. That's right. We turn towards that, which appears to be the, the apparent obstacle is the portal. Here's uh, another, our other question from Sweden. This is Sam who asks, Could you please elaborate a bit more on the concepts of the self versus the no-self? These terms make up the core of many spiritual traditions, and yet they seem to cause more confusion than clarity. Yeah. Well, it's very true. There's a lot of, there are many definitions and, and no one definition. So I keep it pretty simple myself. And when referring to ego, I'm, I'm referring, or or that egoic self is referring to our self story and our self-image. It's our self-talk about who we are, and it's our picture of who we are. And we don't actually need that. We'll probably always have a little bit of that, but we don't need, certainly don't need to believe in it. And that's really the most important thing to recognize and to see through. Now, the self is much greater than our egoic story. This kind of goes back to our conversation about individuation. You know, the self in terms of all the body-mind functioning and the depth of the, of the conscious mind and the subconscious, all of that continues as it is. But as we see through this self-story and self-image, there's a feeling of great freedom. It's tremendously liberating. We feel ourselves as unbounded awareness. And we feel the body-mind then being in us. This is the interesting thing. Our sense of localization changes. It's like, even though there is a, a kind of a local center here, there's also a sense of being unbounded within which the local center 
is appearing. So there's a big shift when we recognize that no-selfness. And similarly, when we really get that in a deep way, there's another step of realizing that no-self is, or the no-one is also everyone or everything. So there's personal localization, there's an impersonal no-one, and then there's this sense of communion with everyone and everything. And I would think of them all as just different levels of a larger wholeness. We wouldn't say, okay, there's the ocean, and then there's the waves, and the waves are non-ocean, as contrasted with the ocean. We would say that, you know, they're both part of the ocean in a bigger sense. You know, the ocean isn't just the, isn't just the stuff that's not rising up in waves. So there's a level of life that is often referred to as the self, which is, you know, absolute silent, vast and unbounded and all that. And then there's the individual expressions. But I think it's more useful to think of them both as components of a larger whole rather than as something we want to divide from one another. Yeah, It's all water. It's different expressions, right? And I actually use that metaphor. That's one of the organizing metaphors, as you no doubt read in my book. Like the wave tip is our kind of the tip of the wave is our ordinary common sense identity as a separate self. And kind of the base of the wave is more that soul level that I was talking about when I was talking about the levels of the heart and the ocean itself would be the the great or universal heart. So those correspond, they map actually very precisely in that way. And so the, the recognition of no self is really, oh, I'm not just a wave tip. You know, I am the wave and the ocean. Uh, but it all continues, but it's knowing the true nature of it. So we're not eliminating uh, anything. We're actually illuminating the true nature of who we are. Here's a quote that um, relates to that from your book. Until the deep heart awakens, we will believe and feel that we are a separate inside self in a separate outside world. So there's you know separation or fragmentation that happens when you say, until the deep heart awakens... Since we're using this ocean analogy a lot, we could think in terms of uh, our awareness just being restricted to the waves versus our awareness kind of incorporating the full range of the ocean, waves, depth, and basis of it, all of that. And by the way, the phrase that you just read was um, one that uh, Rupert Spiro originated, as far as I know. Oh, so okay. I, put a little, I put a little footnote there uh-huh. and uh, attributing it to him. Now, I find it a particularly precise and useful formulation, the, the inside separate self, the outside separate world, because it, that is our ordinary experience. We're in here somewhere. Don't ask me where exactly. And it, the world is out there somewhere. But really, as we examine very deeply, you know, as we inquire into who we've taken ourselves to be and where we've taken ourselves to be, inside or outside, when we've taken ourselves to be, past, future, or timeless now, all of that begins to dissolve. And so to your listener, you know, I'm, I'm responding in particular, this is where self-inquiry is really potent to really question our common sense experience and to unlearn what we've taken to be true about who we are. And the effect is really, you know, the wave discovers its oceanic nature. Which completely reorients its, its life as a wave. It gives context. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, and, otherwise, if the world is out there and separate, then it's always a threat. It's always scary. Always a threat. Always a threat. And the result of that scariness is that we hold ourselves like that. There's a core contraction. We have to be vigilant. We, you know, we have to be protected. And when we, when we know that really it's all the same, 
you know, that the, what we call the world is myself, so to speak. There's such a deep relaxation. And, and then when life brings whatever challenges it does and, and, ultimate, and always will, they're not, they're not received as something um, hostile. We don't go into that deep sense of divisive terror. And this is an interesting point. I just I want to accent this, and, and I don't remember if I did it in the last interview, but, but there is a very kind of visceral terror that we carry as a separate self. There's All fear res- is born of duality, the Upanishad says. That's right. It's right in the Upanishads. So to face that fear, really that level of fear or terror, takes courage and really a love, either because we've been suffering a lot and we really want to just pierce you know, the illusion because we're suffering or because we love truth so much. And often some combination of those gives us the kind of impetus to question this deeply and not turn away from our fear, but actually begin to turn towards it and feel into it. And this is one of the beauties is when we turn towards our fear or turn towards our terror and we're willing to kind of walk through it, it becomes an amazing portal to fearlessness and a sense of what's undivided. And again, that takes a lot of integrity to be willing to do that. One thought that's been in the back of my mind as we've been talking is that it's not enough to listen to interviews like this or read books like yours or anybody's. In my opinion, it's really helpful if there's some kind of a daily practice of some sort that works for you and that you will practice regularly because it works for you. Someone asked, uh, I forget who, uh, what's the best practice? And the, and the, the answer was, the one that you will do regularly. <laughs> because, you know, what we're talking about is experiential and it, it necessitates a restructuring of the neurophysiology. Um, you know, we've heard of brain plasticity. And that's, that's not just going to happen from listening to talks or reading books. It won't. And, and that's why a certain phase of this investigation is active and may require a certain degree of effort, at least at first. And so yeah. listening... Although effort yeah, has effort. this onerous quality to it, you know, I mean, I, I know. It, it can be enjoyable if, if a practice Absolutely really works right. for you, you look forward to it. Yeah, effort in just like creating space, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and setting a schedule. Certain and, gentle discipline. A gentle discipline, yeah. yeah, not an arduous one. And a regular or a semi-regular practice can be very helpful. At some point, a formal practice begins to be or can be supplemented with informal practice, and then they, they blend and... I had years of very regular discipline practice, and now it's more kind of intuitive and irregular because I think what, what I was looking for was found. And that's the main point of the practice is to facilitate that investigation. Yep. Once you cross the river, you may not want to stay in the boat. <laughs> right. Unless you want to do a little pleasure. Yeah, a pleasure, cru- pleasure cruise. <laughs> right, exactly. I remember a couple of years ago at the SAND conference, I moderated a panel on the directive versus the progressive paths. And I remember you were in the audience, at least for the first hour of it. I think you left after the first hour. Yes, I went home. (laughs) And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Here's a paragraph from your book. The direct path accents the clear and immediate recognition of one's true nature by directly inquiring and sensing into who or what we really are. The greatest danger of following the direct approach is remaining on an intellectual level. People can fool themselves into thinking that they have fully realized something that they haven't and become stuck in an arrogant mental view as the deep heart remains dormant. Um, And then 
I didn't really copy down anything you said about the progressive path there. But my sense is that, again, one of these things that's not an either or proposition, that the path can be both direct and progressive, that there can be direct access to presence, as we've been calling it, and that the regularity of that direct access leads to a progressive development. I would agree. You know, it's the recognition of who we are is direct, you know, it's way timeless outside of space and time. The transposition of that to the body-mind is progressive, gradual. Yeah. That's how I would formulate it. And progressive practices have their value, like specifically sitting. And whatever kind of practice appeals to us, maybe it's not sitting, maybe it's moving or writing or whatever it may be that deepens our self-intimacy. So um, I do see them as complementary. And, and often people they get attached to their view, right? They get attached to, okay, I have to practice, 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 practice forever. And maybe in some future lifetime, you know, I will realize something. And you do hear that in, in some, you know, some schools. And then you have others that say you, you are completely reinforcing the sense of being a separate seeker. If you do any practice and really just recognize who you are now and abide in and as that. But in truth, you know, I think they are complementary, and it's important not to get attached to one or the other. Yeah, people hear the direct path, they think, oh, yeah, that's what I want. I just want it directly. I don't want to screw around with some big, long, multi-year project. But I can honestly say that I don't think I've ever encountered an example of anyone who on day one had some kind of direct and full and complete realization and was thereby done. Yeah, I mean, you think of the maybe the, the greatest exemplar of that would be Ramana Maharshi. So, you know, when he's 16, he, his uncle has died. He wants to know what death is like. He asks, he goes, does a meditative inquiry, lays on the floor, asks who dies and awakens to his true nature. And then he goes and sits for many years at a Shiva temple and, you know, at Arunachala. And then up in the cave on the mountain. And then up, yeah, and then two caves on the mountain for decades. And there's a, a deepening and a maturation of that understanding that unfolds over time. Yeah. So I guess the synopsis of this point would be that, again, you can directly access presence on day one of your practice if it's an effective practice, but you can also continue to embody and unfold that for, for decades thereafter. And it's not like you're, would, it's not like you're waiting say, for something to happen. I would say endlessly. Endlessly, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a, I mean, this is my, my experience is it just keeps refining and deepening. Yeah. I don't see any end to the transposition of this understanding. I don't either. And so it's not like you're waiting for something to happen and you're sort of just uh, going on and on for years with no reward, so to speak. I mean, the reward is all along the way. It's like you're following the breadcrumbs and, and you're nourishing yourself on those breadcrumbs as you go. And then you discover you're the bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, we're, yeah, we become increasingly... There's more and more evidence, you know, of our true nature, and we discover the source, you know, of those essential qualities. We've mentioned Ramana, we've, you know, mentioned Vedanta a bit, and we've also mentioned Tantra, and there could be a whole books written about the distinction between them. But some people I've heard lately saying that they feel that Vedanta is sort of dry or something because it 
it emphasizes the transcendent so much to the exclusion of the relative world. The relative world is regarded as maya and therefore worthless or inferior in some way. Whereas Tantra sees the, the relative world as more um, imbued with the divine as, uh-huh. as much uh-huh. part of the whole package as, as the transcendent is. You feel like there's a fair characterization? Do we want to discuss that a little bit? You know, I think it's evolving. I think um, probably traditional Advaita Vedanta has historically and traditionally a strong, strongly accents the transcendent and has been a more renunciate path, whereas Tantra more the householder. But, you know, there's householding Vedantists and certainly throughout history and some that are more oriented towards worldly expression. I think what's interesting, though, is like if we take the example of um, my teacher, Jean Klein, he studied with a Advaita Vedanta teacher in Bangalore, who was a Sanskrit scholar as well in the local college, and as well as with Apananda Krishna Menon in the south. But he also studied with a Kashmiri yogi that he met on a bus in Bangalore. He was introduced to the Kashmiri tradition and to uh, Vijnana Bhairava, which is one of their key experiential texts, and Abhinavagupta and Shemaraj, and so in that lineage. And that really had an impact on his body sensing and his appreciation for this unfolding awareness. So Jean, for instance, was a lover of beauty and of art and of life. And so he had a very, he wouldn't be a traditional in his kind of Vedanta. He was not dry uh, in that sense. And that was what I was introduced to. My, that was my introduction to kind of a blended tantric Vedantic approach. And I think that's becoming more common. I think people who are, have kind of come through the door of Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta are increasingly uh, inclusive of the imminent and expressive. And so um, I think there's some evolution in these teachings. Yeah, and I think there needs to be because, you know, the vast majority of people who would be listening to a show like this or who are interested in spirituality aren't going to be running off and living in a cave. So the teaching needs to be appropriate for them. We can derive great inspiration from Ramana, but we're not going to live like he did. You know, a few of us will. I have a friend who tried yeah, well, I, <laughs> in a desert in Southern California, but yeah. Uh, yeah, not many of us. Well, I have friends who live in ashrams in the Himalayas, but a lot of them aren't so integrated. And I, no. used, to, I used to be with them, and I'm sort of glad that I, I, am, I no longer am. I, I feel like my life is much more developed than it would have been. Well, this is interesting, At least isn't for me. It? Because, yeah, there was, I think, you know, when you and I were first getting engaged in TM, there was an idealized you know, of what a sage would be and what spiritual realization would be. And there's been a, an unfolding, more inclusive understanding over the years. And, and we also see the limitations of a more uh, monastic and renunciate approach as people cut off and deny very important parts of their humanity. And then uh, when they come out of the cave, they really have difficulty in relationships and, and uh, with their students, right? Yeah. You know, endless reports of scandals, you know, and Hindu Buddhist, among Hindu and Buddhist teachers who are schooled, who are old school and don't really have that interior maturity that goes with it. So it's an evolving understanding and conversation. All right. Well, we're getting on towards the end of our talk. We have maybe 15 more minutes if we want to take it. Are there some things that you feel are important that we haven't had a chance to talk about? 
I think I'm going to talk a little bit of uh, kind of contextualize the work of the heart as well. So even though the book itself really accents these different dimensions of the heart and ways of recognizing and working with them, it's part of a much greater system as well, as I suggested at the beginning, you know, at the top of our um, our conversation, Rick. And so it's really important that we have mental clarity and wakefulness. And that means that we really see the limitation of thought and the this compulsion to try to know things that we can't in order to control, in order to survive, and to get increasingly comfortable with not knowing. So when we let go of our conventional grasping to know and are willing to not know, then spontaneously we're open to a different kind of knowing. And this is really where the heart wisdom arises. So people often get hijacked. You know, we talk about the heart, but but they're not really mentally clear. There's not sufficient wakefulness on the level of the mind. So we're hijacked by our beliefs and our thoughts and, and the tendency of the mind to try to you know, envision possibilities and solve problems and decode. So that clarity, I think, is really important in order for attention to really drop into the heart in a, in a more sustained and deep way. So here's how the mind and the heart work. And also, we carry these core limiting beliefs. And as you know, this is an important my, part of my work with people. Even though the thought, those thoughts may localize in the mind, they have a very deep effect on the heart area. So if we're holding the belief that I am unlovable or unworthy or lacking or flawed, it creates a, a frozen place in the heart area. And this is where you know, a very kind of heartfelt meditative inquiry is very helpful in both freeing the mind and the heart. But a theme we haven't talked so much about is the theme of safety and of the opening of the heart. Before we get into that, so hold that thought. The thing about not knowing, can you give a specific example of that? And I'll give you one, one and you tell me if this is the kind of thing you're talking about. But for instance, yeah, I have this friend and we were talking about climate change. And he was saying, well, I don't really know. You know I, I, and I said, well, the scientists who have been studying it seem to know. And he said, yeah, but you know, there's so many things that scientists say that turn out not to be true. And I said, okay, well, how about the moon landing? Some people think that was fake. He said, yeah, I don't really know about that. I said, okay, how about the earth is flat? I mean, there's a whole flat earth society these days, and a shockingly large percentage of the population buys into it, large meaning 6 7%. And he said, well... You know, I don't know for sure. I said, "Yo, oh, come on, man. So obviously there are things we can know with a high degree of certainty, even if we haven't experienced them personally. But maybe this has nothing to do with the kind of knowing or not knowing that you were Correct. Refruiting, yeah. referring to. Yeah, that kind of not knowing is ignorance. <laughs> we're ignoring the facts. Right? Yeah. So it's not about ignoring facts, right? But it's about seeing the limits of the mind. So the mind is really good at analyzing phenomena, but... The mind cannot grasp its true nature, its source, because it's not an object. I see. And this is really important for the mind to see its own limitations. I mean, first of all, there's a lot that it doesn't know just in terms of what's going to happen next. You know, not only the weather, we kind of more, we're knowing more about that, but we don't know our time of death, although there's lesser probabilities for that. That's on a relative level. But in terms of knowing our true nature, you know, the mind can know that it cannot grasp it, that it's a servant and not the master. 
That's really what I'm referring to. It's like, I can't go there and I don't need to know. This is really another really important point. I can't know and I don't need to know. And with that comes a relaxation. We don't have a false sense of control. We have a discerning sense of control. And so I don't need to know. I can't know. I don't need to know. Something in us just relaxes and it allows attention then. We come out of our hypervigilant state and our grasping state. Attention drops down into the heart area. So that's what I'm referring to. And then, and this is very surprising for people, a different kind of knowing emerges that's more direct, more intuitive, and more appropriate in terms of our internal guidance system as well. Okay. There's something also about knowing or not knowing, even with certain relative things, that that if one is sort of adamant about certain ideas or insisting that things happen any particular way, in some particular way, there's a kind of egotism to that and a humility to its opposite. That's right. Yeah, it's like, well, like climate change, for instance. We don't know how quickly it's unfolding, you know, and what the effects will be. We're getting more and more evidence, and this is... This is uh, that it's accelerating faster, actually, than the most extreme anticipated results have been in the past. Right. And so uh, we're seeing more and more articles, you know, about what the potential impacts of and having to rethink more and more quickly. So we're very much into not knowing and being humble about that and being open you know, to learning and discovery. And so there is a, a natural humility and the best scientists have that. Our best scientists are not arrogant at all. So it's that, that quality of humility that's natural and important. But I want to get back to the point of safety, if I can, because yes, we're go ahead. coming to the last. And this is, um, on a practical level, if we don't feel a deep sense of safety within ourselves, it's very hard to keep our hearts open. That's just true on a human level. And it's very interesting just to be to notice that, you know, in terms of our contact with people, you know, whether we feel safe with them or not, whether we're trusting of them or not. And so this is important because we're talking, this is the domain of the hara. Let's explain a little bit what hara is. Hara in, in Japanese means belly, and it's the it's really the the abdomen, and it ranges from the area up to the diaphragm all the way to the tailbone and energetically encompasses the lower three chakras at the base of the spine and um, below the navel and the genital area and and the solar plexus. So it's an area that uh, governs a sense of inner stability and our inner feeling of ground, whether our ground feels open, spacious, and stable or not, and whether we feel connected really with a, a sense of the ground. So part of the sustained opening of the heart requires a certain degree of felt sense of stability within ourselves as well. So that's a a deep inquiry. What is safety? What is our ground? What is it that we apparently stand on and who's standing? And it's uh, also subtle as the heart is and in some ways more difficult to sense into because it's instinctual and unconscious. And yet as human beings, a, a very important part of our experience and one that supports the opening and awakening of the heart. Yeah, I'm just reminded of that verse in the Gita, none can work the destruction of this immutable being. Now, if you knew yourself as that immutable being, that would 
bring with it a certain degree of safety and security. Exactly. Uh, but obviously, if you think you're just this little flesh and blood thing, then whoa, mm-hmm. it's, it's very vulnerable. Well, this is it. And so it's our identification with the body. This particular body is very strong, right? And very compelling. And this is an important part of the inquiry process as we go into the hara is the identification with the body and with the will being the doer. So this is a whole other kind of range of issues and questions that are existentially relevant to the heart. A question just came in, which um, hasn't been sent to me yet, but I just saw some little discussion on the side about it. So we'll see when that comes in, whether we have time to ask it. But I think you've kind of touched upon this, but let's hit it one more time, which is that what would you recommend that people do on a regular basis or an irregular basis or whatever it takes to use the heart as a portal to presence, to the transcendent, as an evolutionary um, mechanism? What can they do routinely, if, if it takes routine, to really make some progress through the use of the heart? Yeah, so we come back to the, the question of practice. It can be helpful to begin simply by bringing attention to the heart area. My book has a series of practices in it that potential readers may be interested in. And by the way, I'm planning to, and in the process of videotaping them and putting them on YouTube as practices. But the first practice is actually to learn to bring attention to the heart area. And we can put our hand on our heart and we can imagine that we're breathing into and out from the heart area. And each time we breathe to let our attention fall more deeply into the heart. So in some ways, this is like a a mindfulness practice, you know, just using the breath as an anchor. Sometimes I suggest, you know, to students that they use their hara or an area, the dantian below the navel. But in terms of the heart, to focus in and breathe. And I would say a good preliminary practice is to think of someone or something that you feel grateful or loving toward. And that evokes a sense of love and gratitude. And then to let go of that object, that person or place or thing, and just focus on the sense of gratitude and love and feel yourself falling back into and as that. And rest in and as that. This has a way of just enlivening the the heart area as well. So it's a good preliminary practice. There's a related practice, which is one of self-inquiry which is with your attention kind of resting in the heart area to repeat the thought subvocally, I am, until you get a sense of what that is, the sense of I am, and then follow it back to its source. So in one case, we're following the sense of love back to its source, love and gratitude. In the other, we're following the sense of I am. And they all take us to the same source which is the capital H heart. There are a lot of complementary practices that can go with that in terms of uh, meditative self-inquiry, but those would be two preliminary practices I could recommend. And you have a bunch of these things in your book, actually. You know, various little Mm -hmm. practices one can try. A question came in that's quite unrelated to what we've been talking about, but I can really relate to this guy. It's Martin from Freiburg, Germany, or Freiburg. Freiburg, because what he describes was very true of my mother also. My mother was in and out of mental hospitals from 
when I was about 13 through when I was in my early 20s and several suicide attempts and all. And I, I couldn't deal with it until I actually learned to meditate. And then I st- had the energy and clarity to start trying to visit her regularly and help her and all that stuff. And she eventually learned to meditate and underwent a huge change. <laughs> she came over to Switzerland and stayed with Marishi for nine months. And boy, it was a big, huge relief. But in any case, let's see what we can do for Martin here. He says, my mom has dementia and got locked up against her will in a nursing home by her narcissistic husband, not my dad, who has the healthcare proxy. Although he tries to sue me and stop me from seeing her, since five months I visit her every day for six to nine hours and try to relax her and ease her suffering and her terror of the sickness. I feel the responsibility to try to get her out legally, but I feel so tired and discouraged. Any tips how to approach this from a higher perspective? Mm. First, I'm touched by the situation, the suffering, Martin, by the difficulty of seeing your mom institutionalized and and also the difficulty of being someone who is experiencing alzheimer's which my mother did and i spent five years uh, with her often nearby as she went through that illness it's a heart-rending experience so i think that's important is actually to be able to open to your own suffering that is to say the pain that you carry in your own heart with some tenderness and some gentleness to hold your own heart, let your own heart be held in presence, you know, as you witness this difficult situation. And to feel yourself held by something greater. It's not all up to you. There is a greater loving awareness that holds all of us, including your mother. And to feel into that. And as you do, you'll feel more at peace in yourself and more grounded in yourself. And you'll be able to be with her actually in a more um, attuned way, in a less fearful or anxious way. And what that means practically, I'm not sure. But just by being more released, feeling yourself more released and held, you can do the same for your mom. Yeah, I would echo what you just said, which is that make sure you charge your own batteries, Martin. Because if you go in there, you, you said you feel tired and discouraged. If you go in there in that condition, you're not going to be helping her as much as if you somehow can rejuvenate and refresh yourself and go in there with fully charged inner batteries, so to speak. And as I mentioned, you know, meditation did that for me. If you have a practice, and even just getting a good night's sleep and, and making sure you're getting enough exercise and stuff just so that you're kind of strong and healthy. Because I know the atmosphere in those places can, be, can really drag you down. And it's important not to merge with your mom. And this can happen kind of unconsciously where we get pulled into the other's experience, a kind of dark vortex, and, and that's exhausting also. I mean, it's exhausting to spend six or nine hours a day most days to do it, but it's also exhausting to get pulled into someone else's emotional and energetic field. So kind of building on your point as well, it's important to keep kind of a clear boundary on a personal level and um, don't burn out, take care of yourself and above all the greatest resources to tap into your being. Yeah, yeah. But I really respect you, Martin, for doing that i mean having based upon my own experience for having having gone through something like that and having not been able to even do it for many years until finally i was able to do it so the fact that you're so dedicated to your 
mother. I really honor that. Hope it works out for you. Yeah, we wish you well. Yeah, it's it's really an honorable thing. Okay, well, it's a little bit of a downer note to end on, but it's a poignant one as well. It's very poignant. It, it is. is. Yeah, it's heart oriented. It, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really felt it, it touched my heart more than mm-hmm. anything we've talked about today. <laughs> you know, just well, there you go. Your human experience. Yeah, right? I just really feel for what he's going through. Okay, well, let's say people have heard this, and they obviously they can read your books. And what else? How do you interact with people? Do you have time to deal with more people than you're already dealing with? Well, let me Go yeah, ahead. let me say a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, the book the book comes out December 10th, uh, but you know can be ordered now. I do have my website, listeningfromsilence.com, and a public events page, and in which. Um, you know, listing of various online and in-person events that I'm involved with, including residential retreats, mostly on the West Coast, but also East Coast and um, in Europe is beginning to unfold as well, Amsterdam in spring. So that would be the best source. And in terms of individual meetings, I really, I really have no availability anymore. So I, yeah, I just have a ridiculously long waiting list and I'm reducing my practice as it is. So yeah, I'm not really available for one-on-one work anymore. Okay, but you do have retreats. And I'll be linking to your website and to your books from your page on batgap.com. So if people are just driving in the car while they're listening to this, you don't have to stop and write it down or anything. You can just check the website and you can follow the links to John's site and his books. Okay, well, thanks, John. It's been really nice spending time with you. I always uh, enjoy running too. into you at, at the Sand Conference. You always have this sort of gentle presence about you that I find soothing, especially out there. I need all the soothing I can get. Uh, well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> conference is so intense. You're a busy guy at those. You're a busy guy at those conferences. <laughs> but uh, yeah, pleasure, uh, pleasure to see you there and to be with you today. I yeah. enjoyed it very much. Thanks. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching. This is an ongoing series, as most of you know. So if you'd like to be notified of upcoming ones, you can either sign up for the email list on bathgap.com or you can subscribe to the YouTube channel or both. One thing I discovered about subscribing is once you subscribe, then this little bell appears to the right of the subscribe button. And if you click that, it tells YouTube that you want to be notified every time this channel posts a new video, which in our case is once a week. So if that's what you want, click the little bell. So thanks for listening or watching, and we will see you for the next one. Thanks again, John. You're very welcome. My pleasure.